Did you know that eating meat increases our risk of having future pandemics? It's true. And what's strange is that we're over a couple years into this COVID-19 pandemic, and this issue of meat and pandemics is still not getting the attention it deserves. So that's our goal today. To help us learn about that is Jerry Martin, who is a global public health expert who has traveled the world helping countries prevent and manage disease outbreaks. This is a very important conversation. Let's dig in. This is the joy of saving the human race, where we try to get the world to cooperate. It's so the human race can avoid some urgent global problems that could mean the end of civilization and cause lots of suffering around the world. But also, we just want to have a good world that we enjoy and we can feel proud of. We are not just citizens of our own countries. We are citizens of the human race. Let's learn to manage ourselves responsibly. Let's help the human race act like it wants to last for a while. I think humans are awesome and the human race is worth saving. There is no time to waste, so let's do this. Hi friends, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. I'm Shelby Martis. So today we're gonna have a conversation about how to prevent the next pandemic because COVID-19 was bad enough and we don't wanna go through this again. Um, a lot of people don't realize that our meat consumption could be increasing our risk of future pandemics and this deserves far more attention than it's getting. So today we're gonna to give it some attention with someone who knows a lot about this. We're here today with Jerry Martin, who is now an adjunct professor at Tufts University uh, School of Veterinary Medicine in their Department of Infectious, Infectious Disease and Global Health. Jerry has 40 years of experience um, designing and managing health and agricultural development activities worldwide. Um, including 18 years in senior management positions at DAI, leading their work on global pandemic risks. Basically, he's traveled the world trying to prevent future pandemics and helping countries set up systems so that they can prevent and manage outbreaks. So, Jerry, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Shelby. It's a pleasure. And first, let me just thank you for your work. It is incredibly important, and um, you were one of those people over many years trying to prevent this stuff that maybe didn't get the world's attention in the way that we needed. Um, and now I think we all have a greater appreciation of what global health um, experts do. So thanks for all of it. I guess if there's any silver lining in this, that's that's one of them, which is greater public attention to health and health concerns. Um, obviously, pandemics being one of the worst um, possibilities. Uh, so I do think that there is an opportunity now to focus a bit more attention on preparedness and prevention uh, going forward, but also to you know discuss what was done in the past that actually did have uh, beneficial outcomes that probably is not well known. Yeah, exactly. Um, I introduced you with a very broad brush um, introduction. Is there anything else about your background that you think my and listeners should know about as we dive in? Well, there are a couple of things that I think are fundamental. One is that I was a Peace Corps volunteer in the mid 70s in Eastern Congo and lived in a fairly small town uh, in a very, very rural area. Uh, and that had a fundamental impact on my understanding of how people live in other parts of the world, uh, how people procure their food, um, and the connectedness between um, uh, food production and health. And then I moved on from there, and I have a degree in anthropology, so I've always been interested in the uh, cultural aspects, uh, economic connections uh, between relationships uh, among people and also uh, the way they interact with their environment. 
Um, and that led me to a long career in international development uh, where I spent the first 25 years working on food security related issues uh, in Africa and Asia, um, primarily looking at how small scale farmers could increase their production of, of food products and get into a, a market economy which would allow them to earn income and you know, pay for school books, uh, improve their shelters, et cetera. And um, ironically, um, that work ended up uh, leading me to uh, work on pandemic preparedness uh, in a very unexpected way. Uh, and that occurred uh, when the first major bird flu, avian influenza outbreaks occurred in the early 2000s. And um, as a result of that outbreak, uh, the program that I was working on called Rural and Agricultural Incomes with a Sustainable Environment, that program involved some livestock development work. And uh, avian influenza, of course, was affecting large-scale poultry production in different parts of the world. So uh, most of my work has been funded by the United States Agency for International Development. And when avian influenza really broke out in 2004, 2005, they came to DAI, the firm that I had worked for during these years, and asked us if we could get veterinarians, poultry veterinarians out to Armenia within uh, three weeks to deal with this. So this is a long story, but the background is that uh, my background in agriculture then became the entry point for dealing with pandemic preparedness and, and, uh, and public health. So, you know, as we dive into this conversation, I want to just offer maybe a little framing of the issue and, and my concerns about it that I've been grappling with. Um, I just want to be transparent about my biases, maybe, that mm -hmm. um, about three years ago, I went vegan. I stopped eating meat when I learned the intense environmental damage that gets done, um, you know, to, to the climate, um, you know, and you hear about beef, especially because cattle give off methane in their burps and farts and it's um, hurting the climate. But also I was astonished to learn how much of the earth's land gets consumed in manufacturing meat. So some of that is um, grasslands for grazing, but also the huge amount of animal feed that gets grown, various grains and such that get fed to animals. So in total, we humans are using about 27% of the land on Earth to create meat. That's the equivalent yeah. of North and South America, two whole continents to grow meat. Yeah, and it's enormous. At the, yeah, and at the same time, we have nature being destroyed. So nature is shrinking while agriculture is growing, mainly to create meat. It's just absolutely insane, and I couldn't support it anymore. <laughs> so that's sort of my, my, my baseline concern about meat in general. But then lately, with the pandemic, I've learned about these risks from meat, mm -hmm. you know, with future pandemics. And I'm just like, this is absolutely fucking crazy. Like, you know, and I'm trying to gauge, you know, is this an appropriate level of concern I have? Or am I just being too panicky and alarmist? And, and so that's what I'm hoping you'll walk us through and help, you know, like, have this based in reality, like what, sure. you know, what our risk is. So... Well, I think I think your concerns are are, are well founded, uh, particularly in the issues related to the environmental consequences of, of animal um, uh, food production. Um, I myself uh, have not eaten meat for twelve years, um, partly because I spent too many times in uh, poultry production facilities and in. Uh, backyard poultry operations in places like Indonesia and Bangladesh and, um, and Kenya to, you know, want to consume that any longer. Um, 
my wife and I are pescatarians, so we still eat fish and shellfish. Uh, but I certainly am aware and concerned about the environmental consequences of meat. But my larger message, frankly, is um, that meat consumption is probably and almost in there, certainly to increase over the course of the next 50 years, regardless of what uh, the concerns and the legitimate concerns about the environmental impact. And the reason for that is simply um, a concept in agricultural economics called the income elasticity of demand. Not to get too wonky about it, it simply it is a measure of if I was given an extra dollar um, of income, how would I spend that extra dollar? And the elasticity is where does that extra dollar go? Well, one of the highest level areas of, of elasticity in terms of people's deciding how to spend that extra dollar, particularly if they're poor, is to buy meat. And I um, have seen this my, in my own life and living in the Congo and traveling around other developing countries. Um, people are frankly what I call um, involuntary vegetarians. They don't have the capacity, the income, or the access to eat meat, whether it's chicken or beef or pork or whatever. And um, when economic development does occur, and this is one of the great achievements, frankly, of the last 50 years, a huge number, hundreds of millions of people have risen above the poverty line in countries such as India and China, but also surprisingly, uh, in many African countries as well. So what you're seeing is uh, um, the actual fruition of, the, of this concept of an elasticity of demand because you are getting a lot more animal meat uh, production and consumption in these countries. And one of the best little examples of it is you can go to Nairobi, you can go to Lagos, you can go to Dakar, Senegal, uh, you can go to most um, developing country cities and you'll find a Kentucky Fried Chicken or the local equivalent of that. And um, so my point is that um, the risks that are associated with animal production related to pandemics uh, are not going to go away. They're not going to go away because people uh, voluntarily stop eating meat. They're not gonna go away um, because of economic changes that will reduce the likelihood of people buying meat. So I think what we need to do is we need to be looking at solutions that uh, reduce the risk and do the reduction in a way that is compatible with the social, cultural, and economic factors that you know, people are facing in their daily lives, whether they're you know, in, uh, Bangladesh or Turkey or Nicaragua or here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, let's talk about solutions in a moment. Um, but first, I want to just establish what is the level of risk that we're facing? I mean, you mentioned a moment ago um, avian flu that you dealt with, and there's also swine flu. So these diseases came from poultry and from pork production. Um, how dangerous were those outbreaks? How bad could it have been? And, you know, if there are future outbreaks from meat, how bad could it be? Well, you know, I think the, we, we now know, even if the risk is relatively small, the consequence when a disease such as COVID-19 actually becomes transmissible between humans, uh, the consequences are enormous. Um, I'm gonna get into perhaps a little bit of um, detail here about different types of avian influenza, but um, the type that broke out in 2004, 2005 uh, is categorized as H5N1, and it has to do with aspects of the, uh, the virus. And this uh, particular uh, avian influenza was transmitted from wild birds uh, in northern China originally 
to domestic poultry production systems. And within about a year or two years, uh, it spread uh, to almost every country in the world. Uh, and it has uh, a very low likelihood and a low uh, possibility of infecting humans, but between 2005 and 2012, about 700 people did die of avian influenza. And there were two or three reported uh, cases in Indonesia where there was no link between the poultry and the people who were infected. In other words, there were a couple of small cases of human to human transmission. So uh, the fact that you can have a case with a wild bird infecting a domestic poultry flock. And then because of the way the large scale production systems of poultry in the world today, it can spread quickly around the world. Um, swine flu is a little different in that uh, the, avian, the influenza outbreak uh, of 2009, which was an H1N1 outbreak, we believe occurred or originated in either Southern California or Northern Mexico. Now that um, many people who of course uh, heard about that thought, okay, well, nothing bad happened. And it's true, it was a relatively um, benign or non-virulent type of influenza, but several billion people actually ended up getting affected by it. We were just fortunate 10 or 12 years ago that H1N1 was not a highly virulent strain. Those two examples um, are linked by the fact that the intermediary host, the one that was between the wild reservoir and humans was the domestic animals that it infected. And um, we've been fortunate in the case of H5N1 that uh, it's not turned out to be very uh, easily transmitted from chickens to humans. You cannot get it by eating uh, a chicken that was infected with H5N1. You probably wouldn't want to because it is so deadly among chickens that uh, most people wouldn't want to uh, or would not either buy or sell a dead chicken of that nature. Uh, in the case of the swine flu, I don't believe there's any evidence whatsoever of any transmission between pork consumption and human consumption. It's more the fact that these are respiratory diseases, the respiratory problem within the chicken and the respiratory problem within the, within the pig. And that is the way it can potentially be uh, transmitted. So it's not so much the danger of actually eating the meat, it's more the danger of these viruses having an opportunity to infect a species that is, you know, produced in enormous numbers and allows the virus to mutate fairly quickly. Yeah. So then I guess the jump to humans from those animals would be by infecting farm workers or people working in slaughterhouses or something like that? It could. Uh, and in fact, uh, there were quite a few instances of um, market vendors in places like Indonesia, Vietnam, China, et cetera, who were slaughtering chickens uh, who did get uh, infected. And there were people who brought home a lot of these countries, of course, uh, consumers actually buy the live chicken and they bring it home and then they kill it. And, and you know, so there is a much greater direct contact between the live animal and humans in those environments than going down to your Safeway or Giant and getting a prepackaged uh, bird. So uh, that level of risk uh, is fortunately fairly low, but it's not zero. Right. And I suppose if we compound that risk times billions and billions of livestock around the world, um, <laughs> we're just carrying risk all the time. So. Right. And in fact, the, the avian influenza control programs that I helped to run and manage um, 
included a fairly significant uh, program of culling birds, killing them to prevent the additional spread of the disease. So there's estimates by the World Bank uh, that over 400 million birds were killed during this period of time as a way of minimizing the spread of the disease. There was a swine flu outbreak in China two, three years ago that was not uh, capable of transmitting to humans, but it was extremely um, infectious to swine. Uh, they killed over 100 million pigs in China in a period of about four or five months in order to stop that outbreak. And even as we're speaking today, I just happened to note that there is a new um, highly pathogenic avian influenza outbreak in Indiana and Kentucky right now. Um, again, not one that uh, has the capacity to infect humans, but it just is another example of these types of viruses that are uh, you know, propagating in these large production systems. I expect that over the next few weeks, we're gonna hear a lot more about that outbreak. Hmm. In a way, maybe you're answering now my next question, which is gonna be, is this risk um, everywhere in the world or does this happen more in poorer countries with maybe less robust systems for managing? But here it is in the United States, one of the more developed countries in the world, and having an outbreak. So um, what is that degree of risk country to country? Well, there is an organization called EcoHealth Alliance in uh, New York uh, that has done a, a map, of, they've mapped the world uh, against uh, pandemic risk uh, from different types of viruses. And it tends to be uh, in a range of about 500 miles to 1,000 miles north and south of the equator in the tropics. Um, but uh, the example I just gave about H1N1 in 2009 uh, actually developed in uh, northern Mexico or southern California outside of that range. So there is a certain as association uh, with the geographic areas uh, that are closer to the tropics. Those also happen to be associated with some of the poorest countries in the world. So you have this interesting combination of, you know, uh, governments that have low level of resources to deal with biosecurity and biosafety or surveillance of these uh, diseases or, you know, dealing with the regulation of live bird markets and so on. Um, and so in some sense, we are in a situation where the greatest risk happens to also be associated with parts of the world that have the least resources to devote to them. And particularly in a lot of the places where um, I worked, um, particularly in the last five or seven years on Ebola and other diseases, um, we had a lot of resistance from national government officials to be devoting their time and resources to pandemic preparedness and prevention because they're dealing with the H HIV epidemic, they're dealing with chronic diseases like cholera and so on. And they um, have actually one of the, I think one of the more interesting characterizations was somebody in Thailand who said to, to me, said, look, it's peacetime right now. And we don't have any, you know, we can't be devoting other resources to something that might happen. He meant peacetime in the sense that there was no pandemic. Well, now it's not peacetime. Now we're, you know, it's wartime. Yeah. So as we try to grapple with this risk from meat production, what are some of the tools that can be used to try to make the world safer from this? Well, I think there are a couple of things and, and I think they're very practical ones and they don't require, you know, it's not like anybody's ever going to say you can't eat meat anymore. It's not, you know, these banning of uh, particular types of animals and whatever. There are very practical ways of, uh, for example, you segregate uh, different types of animals from each other. So uh, if you have a large poultry production facility, 
you have to make sure that wild birds cannot access that area. Uh, you have to, uh, if there is an outbreak somewhere, you have to have a biosecurity program that regulates who can come into that production facility because they can potentially bring the virus in on their shoes or whatever. These are not high cost programs. Uh, we put together one in Indonesia called the Community-Based Avian Influenza Control Program. We brought in the multinational uh, poultry companies, the huge national companies in Indonesia, and we linked them to the small farmers who were raising birds for them. And the way we did it was never to mention anything about avian influenza. All we mentioned was, how can you increase the productivity of your flock by preventing them from getting sick? So that meant more money for the small farmer. It meant that the large scale company was getting a larger uh, return on its investment in the small scale farmer. And it also meant ultimately there were less infected birds. And I, I would say that that was an enormous success. We created an avian influenza free bird brand in Vietnam with supermarkets. So there are very, very, uh, I think concrete, practical ways to do this that reduce the risk both to the farmer and to the consumer, and at the same time, uh, share the costs across you know, that spectrum. Uh, so those are th things that can be done. The other thing that can be done, and we haven't talked too much about wildlife yet, but wildlife is also a potential a major source of, uh, of these viruses, particularly in bats. Um, and one of the ways you can mitigate that risk in these live markets is to do simple programs of segregating species from each other. If you went into some of these markets uh, where I've been, they're helter-skelter. Uh, you might have somebody who's got three or four chickens in a, in a cage on the ground. They might have a ferret or two in another cage above them. They might over here have um, some bats. And because of the, these animals would never come in contact with each other in the wild, but they are brought together in these live markets in a fashion that you know, um, encourages or promotes the opportunity for a virus to jump from one species to another that it typically wouldn't do because it's in the wild. So in the case of Indonesia, we got one of the largest Islamic faith-based organizations to promote clean markets. And what they would do is they would, the Iman and other uh, religious figures would go down to the market and they would meet with the managers and meet with the vendors. And they'd say, look, you know, this is disgusting. This is, you know, why do you have all these this animal feces over here, um, mixing up with other, you know, animals that are being uh, sold over there, clean this up. And, you know, we will, um, you know, you will earn goodwill. And actually that worked quite well. And it didn't, it didn't require a huge investment in USAID funding. It didn't require the government of Indonesia, frankly, to spend a whole lot of money. What it did was it simply mobilized people to recognize that they'd like to have a clean market. And oh, by the way, one of the benefits of that is you're going to reduce the risk of these viruses. It's pretty brilliant. And, and I like with a couple of these approaches you've described, you're managing psychology of people, you know, finding what's in their own best interest. And, and leaning on that to get the sort of change that we're looking for. It, it, it sounds really smart in that way. Right. Well, and I do think we learned some lessons, which, you know, from um, the ineffectiveness of other ways of trying to stop, you know, these kinds of behaviors. Frankly, if you were a uh, poultry uh, vendor in a huge market in Jakarta, uh, and for the last four or five years you'd been slaughtering chickens every day and you never got sick, you probably wouldn't 
put a lot of stock in some guy like me coming in and saying, you know, that's really a risky behavior that you're doing. Uh, it was much more effective to say, um, you know, there are ways that you could run your business that are more hygienic and perhaps attract more customers than be, you know, waving your finger at them saying, you know, you guys are endangering, you know, endangering world health. Yeah. Something I'm thinking is you describe these wet markets, and then I'm also thinking about various farming practices, is could part of the solution be to treat the animals better and to give them more space? I mean, I, I see and hear about these situations where animals are so crammed together, just kind of walking in each other's shit, and they're stressed out, which must reduce their immune system and and make these animals more vulnerable to disease because they're stressed out and not treated well. Is that part of the solution here? Well, I think it probably is part of the solution. Um, I think that one of the issues uh, is how how many birds, for example, in a poultry facility or how many pigs in a swine production facility uh, can um, live in an environment that doesn't propagate, you know, viral um, spread. And I think one of the things we've learned with the avian influenza outbreaks is that uh, that density is probably going to end up uh, being one of the, the real shortcomings of the production systems. Um, the animal welfare side of it, um, something I'm empathetic to, uh, sympathetic to, um, but I don't know that that's necessarily uh, directly linked to risk. It, it probably is because if you cram too many birds into one place and cram too many pigs into one place, you're much more likely to get this uh, uh, spread of a virus quickly. And we'll see that perhaps in this outbreak now in, in Indiana and Kentucky, you know, how quickly they're going to have to shut down uh, some of these some of these facilities. Um, the other thing is, in a lot of countries where I've worked, um, the concept of animal cruelty is basically non-existent, um, and I think that in part, you know, is a consequence of the relatively harsh living situations that people have. Um, it's hard enough to just feed your family than to be worried about how that you know, egg was produced that you were lucky enough to be able to buy. Uh, it may be something more focused on developing countries where we can afford to be more aware and more conscious of animal welfare and perhaps uh, figure out, you know, how do you, how do you uh, improve the, both the, the life of the animal that you're eventually going to consume and at the same time, link that to the re reduction of risk. Yeah. With, um, you know, both wildlife markets and farms that we've talked about, is there room for better testing of animals? Can, can you go through these places and, and sort of test for viruses and, and see how they're doing? Or sure. is that not, not worthwhile because we don't know what the next virus is going to be? I mean, do you no, do that? Uh, there, there, I think that's a, that's a critical part of this process. There's a, new, um, there's a new program that's being funded by the U.S. government um, called DVCN, and it is focused specifically on trying to organize the surveillance of wildlife uh, markets and also large-scale production facilities uh, to survey for influenza viruses and coronaviruses. Um, one of the other programs that we, we thought might be actually quite effective in this regard too, was uh, engaging um, wildlife rangers in different um, you know, countries to be trained in how to recognize um, these types of diseases in wild animals. So that if they found a dead, bat or they found a dead uh, chimp 
they might be able to then say, oh, this is very unusual um, and be able to go to uh, a local veterinary or to a local public health facility and actually take a sample. So these are actually, I think, very important elements in the, what I would call more the prevention side of the, of the coin, um, particularly in the wildlife side of um, the equation. Um, there are ways to do this. I've seen, I think most Americans, you know, would say, oh, you know, bats, what a horrible, you know, you know animal. Uh, but I have seen truckloads of bats, frozen bats, that were just brought out and put on a, on, a, on a table in a market and customers coming by and saying, just like we would do with, you know, a, uh, a chicken or a chicken a or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so since we already know that bats are the reservoirs of coronavirus, like COVID-19, and they are also the reservoir of Ebola, in Africa, um, a more, let's say, organized and well-funded surveillance program and testing program in these markets could potentially identify an you know, a case where um, you find a unique, a novel virus, and you begin to do whatever you can to mitigate the likelihood of that particular virus um, being transmitted to humans. So I think you're absolutely right that, you know, looking at ways to, you know, look forward and look into um, the novel virus um, situation is, is definitely going to be one that we could help. In a situation like that with the bats, is the solution to outlaw the selling of bats? Is that even possible? Or do you have to simply manage the risk with testing and education and such? Can you actually reduce the the extent to which this happens? Well, I know that there are people who would, uh, you know, in a reactionary way, say, "Well, all bats are bad," and you know, if these if these guys are, you know, the first source of these pandemic viruses, we should just, you know, eliminate them. Um, not realistic for a number of reasons. First of all. Um, yeah, I know that, you know, those of us in our culture would say, oh, I can't even imagine eating a bat, but bats are consumed in Africa and Southeast Asia in large quantities. Uh, and so they actually represent a source of important protein for people. And uh, so you, from that standpoint, it's not realistic. Secondly, uh, from an ecological standpoint, bats are pollinators. Uh, of a wide variety of fruits, fruit trees, and so on. You eliminate them, then you've got a serious problem in terms of that. And third, yeah, please don't kill all the bats. Huh? I said, please don't kill all the bats. Don't kill all the bats, and they also eat a lot of a lot of insects. Uh, even here in the United States, you know, you know, on a summer evening, you can sit outside in your backyard and watch the bats, you know, eat up the the mosquitoes. So. Uh, the, the solution there has to be more of uh, a, a, a focus on surveillance. Uh, some of the uh, controversies about the Wuhan Institute in China uh, and their research on bats um, uh, indicated that there were, uh, and I know people who have done this work, um, who've gone into bat caves in different parts of southern China and Vietnam, et cetera, and actually taken samples. Um, and I think the key there is, so what do you do with those samples and how do you protect those samples so that if they actually do indicate a, a novel tip virus, that that doesn't accidentally get released. So surveillance is important, but then the biosecurity and biosafety standards that go along with that. Um, and, and also the other thing you can simply do is you can do a better job or I say you, people can do a better job of, of limiting the interaction between live bats and other live animals. So like I said, in the case of live markets, you don't want to have a live bat you know, up against a, a cage where there's a live chicken. 
where you could get a transfer of a virus, which would never happen in the wild. So to reduce the chance of wildlife infecting livestock, does that mean you have to bring all the livestock inside into buildings? Well, that was part of what we did in the case of uh, avian influenza, which was to encourage uh, small scale or what we call backyard poultry producers in these countries to, uh, to cage their birds. Um, in some cases, totally unrealistic um, because they couldn't afford it or because uh, they, they didn't have the feed to feed the birds. They were actually, you know, free range and they were eating, you know, grain and whatnot that was in the, in the, uh, in the village and so on. Um, but yes, there are specific things that can be done to reduce the likelihood that birds, uh, say wild birds that might be infected with an influenza virus are going to get into a poultry production facility, whether it's caging or netting or other, you know, procedures. And the other thing to do, frankly, is to um, make sure that you have a better understanding of which uh, wildlife uh, species have the capacity to transmit these viruses. It doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be every uh, domestic animal doesn't have to be caged to prevent it from interacting with wildlife. Hmm, got it. So, in some countries of the world where we're talking about, um, well, all these practices of wild markets and, and, you know, farming where disease can happen, I imagine if we discourage certain meat production, um, you'd have a dietary issue for a lot of people because a lot of people are relying on this food to eat. You know, people need protein to live. Could one of the solutions be just a massive effort to make plant-based protein available to people? To just encourage people to eat beans and nuts or tofu or, you know, veggie burgers or... Is that a viable solution? I know there's cultural aspects, just like there is here, but, you know... Well, one of the interesting things about, you know, I'll go back to this income elasticity of demand. When, when you become uh, better off, uh, like we are here in the United States and Europe and China and Japan now, um, you actually begin to spend less and less of that extra dollar on, on meat. And here in the United States, we're beginning to see this phenomenon where plant-based uh, meats are increasing in uh, popularity. Uh, people are like yourself or myself. I, interestingly enough, even though I don't uh, haven't eaten any meat for almost 15 years, um, I actually don't have any desire to. But I think there are a lot of people who would like the taste of chicken or would like the taste of a hamburger and whatnot, and they will, you know, find these alternative plant-based products very appetizing. I, I think it's a wonderful event. I mean, I just saw a, a new one called Daring, um, which had a big ad in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago called Chicken is Broken. And they are now, uh, I gather, one of the largest producers of plant-based chicken. Um, and since chicken is the largest, you know, animal protein source consumed in the United States and probably in most of the world, uh, a company like that, you know, potentially has a huge market as people begin to do what you may have done or what I've done and say, you know, uh, I don't I don't really need to have, you know, the animal pro- protein. I can get my protein from another source. Yeah. And in those companies that are innovating those products, um, I know that, you know, I'm privileged as an American and it's going to quickly show up in my grocery store, but in some parts of the world, it's not going to naturally show up there because people have less income to pay for it and there's not as much of a market. And so it really would require a push to really get it out there in the world. But 
that seems cheaper than having another pandemic and spending more trillions of dollars on economic stimulus and the whole damage that's been done from COVID. Well, it would seem that way, but I, I um, you mentioned the cultural aspects earlier too. And I think that this is probably um, where uh, it's unrealistic, at least in the next um, you know, couple of decades to expect that consumers in these countries, particularly uh, the consumers who uh, have not been able to afford uh, meat, animal meat protein, uh, are going to switch to, to plant-based protein substitutes. Um, so I think that one of the reasons, you know, I, my point is risk reduction, not elimination, and recognizing that, you know, with 700 million people still living on less than $2 a day, uh, we're likely to, to find an increase in animal uh, protein consumption, regardless of what uh, these new companies with, you know, like Daring or Impossible Burger do uh, in the developed world. So we have to, we have to, you know, we have to address the risk more um, in the areas where the risk is uh, greatest. Exactly. So what's the role for um, international systems around all this? I mean, we've talked about some countries that might not have the resources to adequately manage pandemic risk and might need some help. And they're also, I would see a need for just global coordination just for everybody to be on the same page to manage an outbreak and know where it's popping up and how to stop the spread. What, what are the sort of international systems needed that need to be bolstered to handle this? Well, that's, that's, that's an excellent question since I've been in the midst of that for quite a long time and I've seen the good and the bad and the not so good. Um, I will say that um, the United States actually over the course of the last 15 years or more um, devoted a considerable amount of money to pandemic prevention. They funded all the programs that I worked on. They funded a number of programs, uh, the EcoHealth Alliance, the University of uh, California, Davis, uh, University of Minnesota, Tufts University, and others um, worked on. The European Union has had several programs related to that. Uh, I know the United in the UK, um, they're they're working on a related set of issues related to antimicrobial resistance in in animals. Um, so, but there is another element here, and maybe the COVID nineteen pandemic will. Uh, change the dynamic, but uh, I would call it the cry wolf syndrome. Uh, when we were working on avian influenza from 2005 to 2008 or nine, when the pandemic did not occur, partly because I think we were successful in reducing the risk, funding was cut. Then there was the H1N1 outbreak pandemic in 2009, and for a period of time, the funding went back up again. But as I mentioned earlier, fortunately, it wasn't highly virulent, not, you know, hundreds of thousands of people did die over the course of several years, but it wasn't millions. And as a result, funding went back down. And it was in part due to the fact that um, people said, oh, well, you're, you're panicking. You guys are, you know, you just want to perpetuate your work and your businesses and so on. Um, you know, you're crying wolf and there is no wolf. Um, I think going forward after, well, as the, hopefully as COVID-19 is reduced in its um, virulence and reduced in you know, its infectivity, we're going to enter into a new environment where governments, uh, whether they're low resource or high resource governments, are going to have a greater awareness of the need to have a constant level of funding 
for the surveillance, for the mitigation of risk, for the uh, in, you know implementation of different um, ways of uh, analyzing the viral load in different uh, species and so on. And I would hope that that would happen. There's a concept that I think um, few people are probably that are aware of called One Health. And One Health is an interdisciplinary approach to looking at human health, animal health, and environmental health. And it's been around for about 15 or 20 years. And it actually was the foundation for the approach that we uh, carried out on avian influenza and Ebola. Um, I think there's promise in the One Health approach to get um, medical, human medical professionals working with veterinarians, working with wildlife specialists, uh, working with ecologists and so on to see how different uh, connections could be reinforced to, uh, to look at the risk and to reduce that risk. Um, we tried to establish 15 One Health platforms in countries from uh, Guinea and West Africa all the way to Indonesia. Uh, and we spent quite a few uh, years doing that. There is a platform there, but some of those countries, as I mentioned, just simply don't have the financial resources to uh, pay for full-time staff to do that. And uh, as I speak now, you know, those platforms in some of those countries are sort of moribund. So um, whether it's uh, the World Bank or the U.S. Agency for International Development or some of the other major uh, donor countries, um, I think that there, there needs to be a better program for coordination. And I have to say right now, I don't see it. Hmm. Maybe you're answering my question already, but, you know, I'm thinking about various governments around the world and international agencies we need to fight pandemics. You would hope that COVID-19 would prompt action in terms of looking to the future and trying to prevent future pandemics because we now know how bad it is. Are you seeing people mobilizing? Are you seeing increases in funding? Are you seeing um, solid plans being put forth? Like, are people mobilizing now? Well, I do know uh, that the U.S. government has sponsored a couple of new programs. One I call Deep VCN, which is this, uh, looking at the surveillance aspects of uh, virus surveillance. There's another one that recently was funded called Stop Spillover, uh, which is run by Tufts University, um, which is focused uh, on the uh, on working in developing countries that uh, literally works uh, takes the work that was done in the previous projects on One Health and seeks to expand them. Now, these projects, you would say, oh, well, one of them, I think, is about $100 million over five years. Another one is, uh, I think, about $140 million over the same period of time. Uh, I think to a taxpayer, you'd say, oh, my God, that's an awful lot of money. It's tiny. But frankly, it isn't. If you divide it up by 15 countries over five years, and the project that I used to run, which was called Preparedness and Response, it came down to about three or four million dollars per year per country. And that included some of the largest countries in the world, like Indonesia and Bangladesh. So um, even though I can cite some examples in the United States where we're beginning to do, you know, fund these programs in a larger way, it's still fairly minuscule in comparison to the costs that this pandemic has already incurred. And um, I think obviously. The, the other question a taxpayer would have is, well, if there's if you put more money in, is it going to be spent well? Because more money is not necessarily, you know, the answer if if it dissipates or, you know, it isn't well managed and well organized. So I think there's a combination of things that need to go on there. One is, is I do believe that we need more funding. Uh, particularly at the country level, particularly at the community level. 
Uh, and that I think also requires better management. Would some of that better management um, be best done by the World Health Organization so that we have an international hub for these efforts so that it's integrated instead of just this country doing this and this country doing that, like really form a, a solid system? Well, I'm no expert on the WHO, although I have interacted with them over time. Um, one thing most people don't realize is that WHO isn't actually an integrated organization. It has regional organizations. So you get uh, WHO Africa, WHO Middle East, WHO Asia. And those entities actually are almost um, autonomous. Now, Geneva, you know, um, has, has the headquarters and so on. Um, so even that organization is not, is more decentralized than what you might be proposing here. Um, I don't know that that, uh, and WHO, of course, um, until very recently, you know, is only focused on the human health side of this equation. So there's another group uh, called OIE, which is the French term for the World Animal Health Organization, which is based in Paris. And then you have the Food and Agriculture Organizations of the United Nations, which is based in Rome. They call that the tripartite group. And they have attempted over the course of the last 20 years to organize on certain regulatory regimes and certain approaches. But these organizations do not specifically have a lot of their own money. And I think that's one of the, one of the cruxes of this issue is, you know, the United States has its own development programs, UK does, Japan does, and so on. So it's probably more a question of how do you encourage coordination among the donors than it is necessarily coordination among these UN organizations and WHO. Right. It's complex. <laughs> of course it is. Of course it is. Yeah. Very complex. And, and I just noticed with so many um, issues in the world, um, we're left trying to deal with global issues with mainly national governments because in so many ways our international system in the UN is just weak because we haven't given it the authority that's needed to actually get things done. And, and no one country can solve a pandemic. No one country can solve climate change or the destruction of nature or, you know, we're just left fumbling about without the systems needed to actually get things done. It, it, it just feels very scary, like nobody's in charge. Right. And, and I, think, I think you're absolutely right. Um, national governments, in the end, have the, um, have the authority and have the resources and um, they're not likely to be um, um, welcoming uh, another entity uh, over them, telling them you must do this, you must do that. I mean, just witness China and its uh, approach to COVID-19 after the outbreak. Um, they uh, certainly resisted the WHO uh, coming in and examining the facilities and examining the market and so on and doing it uh, in a timely fashion. They were, you know, no, no, that's sovereignty. And, you know, you're not going to impinge on our sovereignty. So I, I do think that, you know, in a larger sense, one of the big public health questions in the future is going to be, um, you know, uh, how can something like a transboundary disease like COVID-19 be managed in a world where, you know, you actually have all these uh, political boundaries? Exactly. Yeah. And I don't you know, have the answer for that. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. I mean, it is all very complex. Um, and it's stuff that we have to work on. I mean, that's what my work is about, is trying to promote these international systems so that we actually have the tools to save humanity from destroying itself. I mean, right. basically. And I, and I think if to take an optimistic perspective on it, I do think COVID-19, at least over the you know next five to maybe 10 years, uh, is going to provide uh, the impetus and the incentive for greater cooperation. Uh, I, I truly believe that, and I, and I really hope it turns out to be true.
I'm curious about your philosophy or assessment of psychology with how COVID-19 played out um, after many years of public health experts like yourself warning the world about the risk. It, you know, it, it just, no one should have been surprised by COVID-19. The warnings were there. There were people shouting at us, like, please pay attention, give some funding, like do something. And the world just kind of yawned and went about its business. So I feel like there needs to be an assessment of ourselves around this, an assessment of our political systems. Why did they fail so badly to appreciate the risk and do some forward looking? And and maybe what we need to learn about this is not only our reaction to pandemics, but humanity faces other risks that are not getting dealt with. So we've got climate, we've got destruction of nature, we've got nuclear weapons, we've got dangerous technologies being invented. And if we're only looking at the last crisis and not planning for the future, we're cooked. So, I mean, has all this given you any insight about how we can best communicate with the public and with policymakers in a way that might get traction about our future um, crises that we have to face? Well, I think there are... Uh some positive elements, uh, and then there are unfortunately some quite negative ones too in that regard. Um, on the positive side, um, the, the production of the RNA vaccines um, has been, you know, nothing really short than a, than a miracle. Um, there's been a recent uh, good article on STAT uh, by a woman named Barnwell, who, um, I think it's Helen Barnwell, who um, said, let's take a step back and recognize how fortunate and lucky we have been that these vaccines were, were made and effective in such a short period of time. And then she goes back and points out that actually some of this original research started during the first SARS outbreak in 2002. And so we actually in some ways have been preparing and it was being done um, by researchers and scientists, uh, geneticists, etc. Um, but not in a you know highly visible way. But fortunately, they were doing it, and they were getting funding too. So I think uh, we have to feel you know good about that um, level of basic scientific research being funded even uh, without uh, the certainty that there was going to be a coronavirus uh, pandemic. Uh, and I think all of us who have been vaccinated, uh, all of the people who um, have you know, had reduced risk of hospitalization and death should be really thankful about that. I think the negative side of it, uh, frankly, is what really surprised me as an American. Um, having worked in uh, countries that have a lot less resources, um, uh, I'm really pretty appalled by how poorly the United States has done. Uh, and I know there's a political dimension to that, um, but I also think that the CDC um, has uh, not performed at the level of a premier um, public health institution. Um, even now, you know, we have a disjunctive, disjunctive uh, communications policy on masking and so on. Um, I would hope that going forward, um, that we would look back on this and reflect on how to better organize the uh, communication of risk and mitigation um, procedures and factors so that it doesn't get politicized in a way it has, and that we could be ready or be better prepared for the next 
case of a pandemic because it is going to happen. It's not, it's not a question of, you know, if, it's really more a question of when. And so if we can uh, begin to focus more resources on understanding how best to communicate these behavioral policies and, and best practices, um, surprisingly enough, I think there are a lot of countries where people, you know, that, that used to be considered uh, shithole countries who have done a much better job of uh, protecting their, their people than we've done here. And I, I think that's, you know, that's a real tragedy. It sure is. I hear that. I've been really enjoying this conversation and I've learned a ton from this and I'm grateful. Um, is there anything important that we haven't covered yet that you think needs to be mentioned? No, I think I think I I think I've more or less exhausted my repertoire here. Um, well, I, I wouldn't sell yourself short. You actually have deep experience and I could probably pull more out of you for hours, but um, I, I do so appreciate your time. Um, thank you for joining us today. I, I do really appreciate this. Well, you're more than welcome. I appreciate the opportunity. As you can tell, I, I really do care about these things. Yeah, thank goodness. And listeners, thank you for joining us. Um, I want you to know that in the show notes for this episode, I'll link you to an article that um, our friend Jerry wrote that is how I discovered him, very well written, that frames um, some of these issues around meat production and pandemics. Um, and I hope that you'll be with me for future episodes and we'll keep digging into ways we can uh, help humanity thrive in the future. All right, take care. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, but you're not done yet. We can't change the world if we keep the joy of saving the human race to ourselves. Help me spread the word and help this movement grow. Please subscribe to the show, both the podcast and the YouTube channel. Leave ratings or reviews, which encourages others to listen. Share this show with others on your social media. Even better, just tell a friend about it and have a good conversation about the state of the world. These things really make a difference. I hope you can help the show grow and reach a larger audience. I'm grateful for your help. Thank you. And please stay in touch with me. I love to get feedback, suggestions, and questions. Go to the website at joyofsavingthehumanrace.com. At the website, you'll learn more about the show, and you can sign up to get occasional email updates. Thanks to Moby for the show's theme music, and thanks to you for being here. All right, we're done for today. Be well. I'll talk to you soon.